We are going to be in the letter uh, from Paul to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. We're going to start today the first of three, I'm just calling the Christian household. Uh, today will be husbands and wives, next week God willing, fathers and mothers, then the third, children uh, and siblings. And so the Christian household, why this now? Um, Partly it's been a while since I've just preached directly at this subject, and so a few months ago I thought this would be a good thing. Uh, We have, as Pastor Jeff said, several weddings coming up, and so that reminded me that this would be a good subject now, and we have young people who are wanting to get married And then, of course, culturally, this is a a big, big deal, and we want to make sure that we maintain. And then we have lots of new people coming, and I want to make really plain what the Bible says on this issue. Uh, Some of you, this new or old, hopefully this is good for you and a good reminder. Um, Some of you, this may irritate greatly, and so... I hope you allow that to do its work that it's supposed to do in you, um, which is to irritate you enough to look at God's word and repent because your irritation is wrong and you need to turn to what is true and right and good. I want to start with something that really doesn't have much to do with this topic specifically, but more generally. Um, A guy named Soren Kierkegaard wrote that Christianity... Uh, is acoustic. What he he meant there is that whatever Christians do and say is always echoed back to them. And you can tell whether or not you're doing your Christianity right by the echo. Uh, He says, heed what the echo answers and you'll know at once if what you're dealing with is actually Christian. And he gets to the preaching. He said, when In this world, one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, glorious, profound, what a serious-minded Christian. Thou shouldest be exalted to princely rank. If that's what the echo says back, know then that this signifies that the preaching is a base lie. (laughs) If that's what the preacher's getting, uh, you know, attaboys and wow, you're amazing and you're so encouraging and... Um, He says, if he wins all things earthly, he's a liar, deceiver, and has falsified his doctrine. Second, when one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, he's mad. He's crazy. Know then that this signifies that there are considerable elements of truth in his preaching. Because Christ, that's what they said of him. He's got a demon. This guy's nuts. There was a point where Jesus told them that if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And then there's a little editorial note, and then most of the people went away from him. Why? Because they thought he was a lunatic. But that's not the, the main echo we want. It, it hits the mark, but it doesn't press hard enough. You'll notice that when Jesus said that and the crowd dispersed, he pressed harder. That wasn't enough. He says, but when one, this is the third, so first, if they respond with the echo of, yay, you know that the preacher's way off. 
if they hear the echo of, man, that guy's nuts. He's hitting the mark, but he needs to press harder. And here's the third. If one preaches Christianity in such a way that the echo answers, away with that man from the earth, he does not deserve to live. You know then that this is the Christianity of the Bible. Without change since the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, capital punishment is the penalty for preaching Christianity as it truly is. Hating oneself to love God, hating oneself to hate everything in which one's life consists, everything to which one clings for the sake of which one selfishly would desire to have God's aid or get it, or to console one, that one did not get it anyways. Without any change, capital punishment is the penalty for preaching Christianity. And nowhere is that going to be more true than when we preach about this topic, sex. And by sex, I don't mean sex. I mean male or female, marriage, husbands and wives, household. You've seen that Marxism is in the news a lot, cultural Marxism, critical theory, critical race theory, all of those things, and If you were to go back and read Marx, actually, at the very end of his Communist Manifesto, he gives just a very brief section at the end on, okay, what do we do with this philosophy? What do we do with this view of the world? And one of the first things he says, we've got to destroy the family. And by the way, Marx had a wife and children, and he never stopped being a husband or a father. So again, These folks always tell you what's good for you, but they don't ever follow it. But at the very end, destroy the family. Destroy the family. And so uh, that's nothing new though, right? Marxism isn't new. It's not new. It's as old as they come. It goes all the way back from the beginning to destroy the family. Especially husbands and fathers masculine rule in the family. So this is why this is needed. It's our area of greatest compromise in the culture, and yet it's the place that Christ most bids us to come and die, here. This is where we will take our stand, right? So I want to make this real plain. I'm not going to get real philosophical for you. I I just want to, in this sermon, what what are the duties of husbands and what are the duties of wives? Pretty simple. What do you do if you're single? Well, listen, could be helpful for you. You may get married someday. Many of your friends are married and you see flaws in their marriage that they don't see and this could help you address them. You're going to be involved with younger people who will get married one day and you could be helpful to them. There's, there's much good. And then, of course, just the plain teaching of Scripture is applicable beyond the intended audience to you yourself. So hopefully this will be good for you. So, so I'm going to do a few things. I, I just want to I'm going to read this. I'll I'll, I'll explain it real briefly. I want to talk about three realities in this text that are, they're, uh, they're the main realities to embrace that are functioning behind the scenes of why this is true. And then what are the common duties of husbands and wives? What are the duties of husbands? What are the duties of wives? That's what we're going to do. So let me, pr- let me read this, pray, and then explain it a bit. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see that your law is a wonder. Uh, Forgive us for seeing your laws as only restrictive, as dull, as uh, ancient and worn out. Instead, God, help us to see that they're a delight, and so keep them. In Christ's name, amen. So we're dealing here with the part of Scripture that is often called the household codes. So typically towards the end of a, a letter, the apostle, whether it's Peter or Paul or others, would deal with different areas of our lives as Christians, and one of those being the household. And they sit almost always in these, in these kind of application section of the letter deal first with the household because it is the first government established on earth. In Genesis 2, the first government that God established wasn't civil government. It wasn't the church. It was the household, Adam and Eve married and then having children. And so they deal with it very clearly. So they're going to deal with husbands and wives Mothers and fathers, children, and often slaves. So how to rightly order your home as Christian. Why? Why why do they deal with these? Well, because the temptation is to not live biblically and Christian specifically in those areas. It's the central reality in our lives, our households, and it's therefore the area of temptation where most damage is going to come. And then, of course, we're creating God's image created male and female, created to marry and become one flesh and to be fruitful and multiply, to raise our children in the Lord. And that is all for the sake of displaying God's glory on the earth, as we'll see in this text. This text is one of the most densely and wonderfully packed portions of Scripture concerning marriage. Now, one of the tricks here, uh, so we have... As Pastor Jeff said, some couples getting married, and one of the things that you do in pre-marriage counseling is to help them forget about the wedding day and think about what's coming after. But typically in pre-marriage counseling, all they can think about is the wedding day. And so this is, this is in the Bible to help you know how to be a husband and to help you know how to, to be a wife and, and what those are for. Paul simply tells wives one thing, submit. And then he simply tells husbands another thing, love. So wives are to submit to their own husbands, and husbands are to love their own wives. And then he says, what for? For Christ's glory. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is, the husband is playing 
the role of Christ, and so husbands are supposed to be reflecting Christ accurately. Wives are playing the role of the church, and they're to accurately reflect how the church should respond to Jesus in submission by how they respond to their husbands. So that's what it's all for, for the glory of Christ. So there are three vital realities that you need to know if you're going to do this well. These are the realities that this text is built upon. And the first one is, of course, we're gods. We're his creation. We exist for him. So as you think about your marriage, God doesn't exist for your marriage. Your marriage exists for God. This is wonderful. God made you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He spoke you into existence. You are upheld by the constant speaking of you. You are his spoken creation. Isn't that wonderful? Just look around. That's, that's who you're dealing with here. Those people created by God, spoken by him. And then he made you male and female. You'll notice in verse 31 that he quotes back from the end of Genesis 2. This is what the Bible constantly does, especially when speaking about marriage. Always goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he doesn't intend you just to remember that verse at the end of chapter 2. He intends you to remember the whole of Genesis 1 and 2 in his teaching on being created in God's image that he made you male and female to be united in one flesh and be fruitful and multiply. All for the sake of his glory. That's what you're here for. And so that's the first vital reality. Who are you? Well, you're God's creation. He made you male or female. Only two sexes. More on that in a moment. And he created this reality of marriage where one man and one woman are united, the man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, all for the sake, in verse 32, of showing the world this is the way Christ loves his bride, and this is the way the bride submits to Christ. So you know that, right? You've heard that before. Nothing new there. So how are you doing with it? So that's the first reality. We are God's. The second reality that I want you to get here is how good God's law is. These verses are all telling you what you are and telling you what you're to do as who you are. One of our problems as people is we have a rather negative view of these kinds of things. Now we like to hear them at weddings because weddings are happy times. I can tell you as a pastor, and other pastors have said this, I'm not the first to say this, for pastors, funerals are much better than weddings. What do I mean there? I love you gals, and it is beautiful, but brides are often very, very difficult to work with. (laughs) They've been thinking about this since they were born. They've had this plan, and it's going to go that way. And, you know, a lot of stress, a lot of work, 
And in funerals, everybody's teachable and humble. But anyway, so you come to this text and you want it read at your wedding. Because it's beautiful, it's lovely, but it's law. It's telling you what to do. And we don't like that. We, we want to see God's law as suggestion. We want to see God's law as repressive. It's too hard. It's always taking. It's never giving. It's boring. It's outdated. But what if your view of God's law is compu- completely wrong? What if your view of God's law should be, it actually gives life. It doesn't take it at all. It's not boring. It's actually full of joy. Sometimes I think we view God's law like a weak old rotted deer carcass alongside the road. And instead it's like the choices of stakes. So when we read these verses, this isn't arbitrary. It's not a suggestion. It doesn't steal life. It isn't too hard. It's far from outdated. It's from the one who spoke stars into existence. It's from the one that spoke you into existence. It's from the one who is putting you back together. Defining what, you're, what you actually are. Because we've lost our way. We've lost our mooring. We, we don't know who we are. And this is simply describing, husband, what you're supposed to be, what you are. Wife, what you are. It's from the one who sent his only son to die for your, play, er, for your sins in your place. Isn't that good? Can't we then... Look at his law and receive it as good. It's good, it's right, it's peace, it's life. If you want to please God as a husband, if you as a husband want to be pleasing to your wife, if you have a wife want to be pleasing to your husband, this is what you need. If you want a marriage that is actually good, you need this law. Because this is the description of a good marriage, of a happy marriage, of a satisfying marriage. We know that marriage isn't easy. It'll never be without problems. But if you want a marriage that works, here it is. God is telling you how, God isn't telling you how to do marriage. He's telling you here what marriage is. And your calling is to take it by faith and say, this is good, 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 good. Give me more. Help me to see it rightly. So first, we are God's created in his image. Second, God's law is good and tells us what is and then calls us to live in light of it. Third, functioning behind this text is God made us male and female. There are times in the Bible where God addresses us generally without reference to our sex. He tells us that we're to love one another. He tells us that we should be praying always without ceasing. And he he doesn't reference male and female there. But oftentimes, he does address us specifically as male, here's what you should do. And then as female, here's what you should do. He addresses us according to our sex. Now, even when he doesn't 
address us according to our sex. Because you are male or you are female, you receive what he's saying as a male and not as a female. Or as a female and not as a male. And I don't know if you know this, but that's going to be different. You're going to hear something different. And so the simple but fundamental reality is that in order to be a godly and goodly husband or father, a godly, goodly wife or mother, you first have to be a man or a woman. That comes before your marriage. That's so simple, but do you understand what I mean here? So many times a husband sees himself as, I need to be a better husband, but you first got to stop there and go back to, what does it mean to be a man? You got to get that, and then your husbanding will come along. And same for a wife. If you want to be a good and godly wife and you realize, man, I'm just not as submissive as I should be, I'm not as respectful as I should be, start with being a woman first. What does God design me to be there? So your sex is even more fundamental than your marriage. Your sex is even more fundamental than your husbanding or wifing. And so God addresses us in these verses not as androgynous beings, sexless, but as male, here's what you should do as a husband, female, here's what you should do as a wife. So start with your biology. You need to obey your sex. You are not to act sexless in your marriage. So this is a great problem within marriage. And this is why marriages often, when they're in trouble, don't get the help they need because we are completely unwilling to see first that the male is not acting like a man in the marriage and the female is not acting like a woman in the marriage and that's a big source of the problem. So, what do marriage counselors always tell troubled marriages to do? Communicate. It's a communication issue. And do you know what the issue underneath the communication issue is? The man is trying to communicate to the wife as if she's a man. <laughs> and the wife is trying to communicate to the husband as if she's a woman. It's a male-female issue. It's not a communication issue. There's plenty of talking going on. <laughs> and so God made you male and female. And, and this is really a wonder because when God made us, he kind of got a two-for-one deal in the creation of humans. Because I don't know if you know this, but it, it's not like we're just two different, just, just like little different types of people. It's like we're two different species, <laughs> Right? I've been married to Mandy almost for 21 years, and I really still don't. I know you've heard this before, but it's true. She's an alien, or I am. And I don't mean that as like pointy head and things. I mean, it's like, who is she? It's a mystery. It's a wonder. And there is nowhere that our world is more confused. There's nowhere that you're more than confused. But you are inherently sexual. What I mean there is I don't mean that you're inherently wanting to copulate. I mean there that let's say we had a nun. Somebody who is remaining celibate. Or a priest here. Somebody who has given themselves to being celibate. 
that the nun can't help but think and pray and perceive this world as a woman. And the priest can't help but think and pray and perceive and react to this world as a man, even though they're not having sex. You are a sexual being. You can't help but look at the world according to your sex and live in the world according to your sex. It's the most profound reality about you other than that God created you in his image. And so when the world wants to deny this, it's really, really harmful, destructive. So who are you? You're created by God for his glory. He has given you his law to define who you are and rebuild you back into that image. And he made you male and female to do the hard work of living more and more obediently to your sex, including in your marriage. All right, so now let's get to some specific duties having laid those groundwork. There is a common calling that both husbands and wives have. Several. First is just to be Christian. To the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So be a Christian. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as a husband or a wife. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Now, what I mean here is I, I don't mean just mainly that make sure that you're a Christian or that if you're not, you become one. I, I mean here, live Christianly. Give yourself to living for God. Live a life of ongoing repentance and faith. I, need, I mean that the husband and the wife need to have this Equally yoked idea that their life is God's and they're going to live for him according to his word. Now the husband should set the example for sure of this and ensure that the marriage is being built on this. Also, it would imply that believers shouldn't date or be involved in those kind of relationships with unbelievers, nor should they marry them. But very practically, Married people who are believers should commit to regularly worshiping with the church and celebrating the Lord's Supper and enjoying in the family Bible reading and prayer and singing and other good disciplines. As Pastor Toby said a few weeks ago, we're helping each other get to heaven. So that's the first common duty. Help each other to heaven. The second common duty then out of that is just love. Now, here in our text, the, the husband is told the, his one duty is to love the wife. I'll, I'll tell you why Paul singles out the husband for love, even though we know that the wife is to love as well. So let me just say, commonly, love God with all that you are. Second, love each other. Now, by love here, I don't mean merely attraction and emotions. Love does include attraction and emotions. It's, it's good to be attracted to the other. It's good to feel affection, but that's not mainly it. Love isn't demanding somebody else serve you as you want. This is one of the negative uses of, let's say, the five love languages. One of the ways that that is used is a a club to beat our spouse over the head because they're not loving us according to our love language. You do realize that that wasn't the purpose at all for that book. 
The purpose of the book was for you to help understand what your spouse's love language is so that you can love them in a way that will be received by love, not to beat them over and say, you're not loving me according to my love language. If that's coming out of your mouth, you didn't get the point of love. You're not being loving there. So love each other. How? Well, give your life for your spouse. Lay down your rights. Quit demanding. Think intentionally about what it would look like to love him or her and then act and repeat. Enjoy being with your husband or wife. I think there's so many marriages where you enjoy doing this and she enjoys doing that and you don't spend time together. Or you exist kind of as roommates. Spend time together. Enjoy each other's company. Be sad when the other's not there. Be patient. Overlook faults. Forgive really quickly. Help each other. Help each other bear with the cares and struggles of life. Love. Love. Start there. So some specific duties. Here, we see that the husband is told to love his wife. Husband, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. That sounded really bad. I did husband singular and wives plural. I didn't mean that at all. Husbands, love your wives. Why is the husband singled out to love when we know that the wife should love as well? Well, Because he's the head. He's the one given primary responsibility and he needs to set the tone for love. And if he's loveless, it will destroy the marriage in a way that if the wife was loveless, it wouldn't. And because this is what his wife wants more than anything else. The husband wants respect more than anything else and sex. But respect, what the wife wants, as it's defined in verse 29, is to be nourished and cherished. Okay, so God tells the husband to love the wife and then defines love as nourishing and cherishing because this is what she wants more than she wants anything else. I can tell you right now that your wife, if she's not cherished and nourished by you in your marriage, she is right now feeling inside of her that that's the one thing she wants. And it would make her weep right now if she's not getting it. That's what she wants. For you to look on her as you don't look on anything else in this world. Not your job, not your toys, not your sports, not your physique, not your Quaffed hair, her. And then the husband is told to love the wife because the husband represents Christ. And we can only love, the church can only love him because he first loved us. So the husband is to love the wife because the way that he encourages her love is by loving her first. He's got to go first. This is exactly what it means to be man. You're first. You go first. You take the lead. You initiate. So he defines then this love of the husband in two ways. First, love as Christ loved the church. Second, love as you'd uh, love your own bodies. Love as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice. You are given to protect, provide, and lead your wives This isn't according to your whims or the whims of your life, but according to the truth. 
your life for hers. That's it. Now, in our day, this has been redefined by this term sacrificial servant or servant leader. And what we've actually done is we've emphasized the servant and crossed out leader. And we've said that a husband is a servant leader when he helps with the dishes. Or when he listens to his wife rant and rave about his failings, but Mary says the words about hers. That's a servant leader. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, which means you lay down your life for, and sometimes that means saying no. So love them. Your love is supposed to sanctify her. It's to lead her to grow in godliness and feminine beauty. It isn't easy work, brothers. Wives, you know yourself. You sometimes make it very difficult for him to love you. But he's supposed to love you. He's supposed to help you be better, more beautiful, more godly. To help you deal with your pride and gossip and love of buying things. So a woman, like the church, should be showing people that I am well loved. So a woman who, you know how hard this is to say this, but I think you understand I me. Mean, a woman who lets herself go probably isn't cherished and nourished well. She doesn't have a reason to be lovely. And so love her. Unchangeable to heaven. And then you're to love your wives as you love your own bodies. This is a nod to Eve, who came from Adam, because she is actually your body. Some of you men have possessions that you are very, very careful with. We call, some of you call your car your baby. And you're very careful. Or maybe it's a tool or I don't know what it is for you. And you care for it. Do you, your wife? Are you as careful with her? Now, the temptation for you as a man is to be harsh on one side. That's a ditch you could fall into. On the other side, it's, it's to be passive and weak. On one side, you could fail in not giving her attention, giving other things attention. Or on the other side, it could be just complete abdication. Wives... You are called to submit to your husband. And like the husband is called to love as Christ loved and love as their own body. So the wife is told to submit as to the Lord and to submit as the church submits to Christ in all things. 
Now, if we're being attentive, we might notice that after the wife is ordered to submit to her husband, we would expect the husband to be commanded to rule over his wife. Instead, he's commanded to love her. And so the context of her submission should be love. You'll notice husbands that the wife is told to submit to you. You aren't told to demand her submission. There may be times, maybe weekly, where you'll have to remind her of her duty. But if you're loving her, if you're nourishing and cherishing her, you won't have to very often or as often. And so you should be loving her in a way where she does want to give what she's told. So submission, as to the Lord. One of the ways that we wiggle off of this command is by reducing it down to submission means that when the couple has to make a difficult or big decision that if there's disagreement, he gets the tie-breaking vote. And yet you have to wrestle with this little phrase, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I don't know about you, but my relation to the Lord isn't that he gets the tie-breaking vote. It doesn't seem to describe the fullness of my submission to the Lord in the Bible. All right, Jesus, it's, I don't know what to do here. You say this, I say that. I guess you get the tiebreaker here. No, it's as to the Lord in everything. It takes faith. It's not easy. Because your husband is your head. The creation order is what this is built upon. Adam was created first and then Eve. He further defines it in case you aren't made uncomfortable enough there. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so the wives should submit in everything. One of the things we should love about God's word is it's very, very specific. We'd wish it not so, maybe, that we could wiggle off the hook in everything. Wife, submit to your husband. Now, one of the reasons that, or one of the excuses some would give to this is, is that you think that submission includes submission to abuse. Not, not so. If your husband is abusing you, you should come and tell us and, and we should discipline and we'll tell the authorities and we'll deal with him. You don't have to submit to abuse. Or submission means submission to sinful things. No, because it's submission as to the Lord and so your submission is in the Lord and if your husband is calling you to do things that the Lord would disapprove of, then you have to submit to the Lord. And so we have all manner of excuses, and yet the word stands, wives submit to your husbands as the Lord, wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ in everything. Now Paul, at the very end in verse 33, 
defines the heart of this submission as let the wife see that she respects her husband. And there's nothing more that your husband wants than your respect. When I do weddings, I don't let the husband and wife write their own vows. Sometimes they want to, and this is our first point of contention in weddings. This is why funerals are preferable, because you just don't have that kind of stuff in funerals at all. Um, but I don't, because we have historic Christian wedding vows, and they're way better than anything you can come up with. And the, the one difference between the husband's vows and the wife's vows, you know what it is? The historic Christian vows for the wife where she promises to obey her husband. (laughs) Why? Well, because Sarah, in 1 Peter 3, is held up as an example of a woman who has the faith to submit to her husband, and verse 6 defines her submission as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Because she respected him. And your respect for your husband will always be tempted, not when you agree with him, but when you disagree with him. It's the same thing with our submission to civil authorities. Our submission to authority isn't tempted when we agree with the governor, but when we disagree. So your temptation will be often with your mouth as a wife. Women are often much more relational, more verbal, which is why they excel beyond men at learning new languages and so forth. And so your sin will be in nagging, complaining, and running circles around him in arguments, cultivating a spirit of disrespect. This is why in First Peter Chapter 3, verse 4, it commends to a woman a gentle and quiet spirit because she respects him. So this is the good word of our heavenly creator who made you in his image, male and female, who gives you his law to tell you what your marriage is and what you as a husband are and what you as a wife are so you can receive it as the good word from your God and have the faith to live it. So will you, do you have the faith to live it? So what do you do when you muck this up? Because you're gonna. The... the the simple secret, not the, the, the secret here is that none of us are good at this. Well, you confess it. And so husbands, if you have not been nourishing and cherishing your wife, please confess to her. Wife, if you have lacked submission and respect for him, confess to him. One of the Mantras of our day is that the man is always wrong. Right? Or it's, it's kind of like in a business. The customer is always right. <laughs> you know that's not true, right? In fact, I 
typically find that the customer is mostly wrong. And so what men are told to do in arguments is just admit that you're wrong. Because <laughs> the wife's never wrong. And happy wife, happy. So just keep her happy. I have found in marriage counseling that it's typically women who have a much harder difficulty telling their husband when they're wrong. She will not admit that she's wrong. I've had husbands in our church tell me I've never heard my wife say those words. I've never heard my wife apologize. Now, husbands, you are to take the lead in this. If you're wrong, admit it. If you're not wrong, don't admit it. The only time you should confess sin to your wife is if it's actually a sin before God. Otherwise, you're lying. Don't do that. It's not helpful, actually. But wives, one of the ways that you can submit and respect your husband is tell him when you've done something wrong. And the only reason you wouldn't is just pride. You're very stubborn. And you think that you have to maintain self-respect. And so you cannot humble yourself before your husband and admit that you were wrong. You can't admit to your children when you've been disrespectful in front of your children that you were wrong to disrespect them. And so I'd urge that kind of humility on both of you, but particularly on wives. Now, why did I just do that? Why did I just single out wives here? Because in most evangelical churches, the one group in the church that's completely off limits are females. Listen to the difference between most Father's Days and Mother's Day sermons. Mother's Day sermons are all flowery and how great women are, and Father's Day sermons are all about how bad the guys are and how they need to do better. Because I hope it makes some of you want to kill me because then the echo, I'm about right. Uh, may God give us mercy, huh? Let's pray. Father, help us here. Help me here. Help us as husbands and wives to have faith that you have made us. You're redeeming us. We're yours. And to submit ourselves to your word because it's good and right and perfect and pure and holy and eternal. And so give us faith as husbands to love our wives, to nourish and cherish them, to beautify them. And help wives to submit to and respect their husbands as to you and everything. God, we need your grace when we fail, to have the humility to confess it. Pray that you'd give us as husbands more backbone and more tenderness and wives more quietness and submission, respect, so that our marriages might more accurately give you glory, might display for the world the truth that this marriage is a gift from you to tell the world what you're like and that others might see it. And so, God, give us grace now. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.